And because I did have that experience of being burned by a viral video in the past, I make sure for every new video, I'm like, okay, if this video goes viral, will that help me? Or will that, you know, knock mm -hmm. me off course? Hi, and welcome back to Careers 2.0. Let me give you a little rundown of our guest today, Aprilin Alder. She was in a top tier school, landed a Wall Street job, but decided that she wanted to create content, like many of us. And as it happens, she went viral very quickly in a very profitable niche. She made a lot of money. She even landed a consulting gig for $60,000. She collected 20,000 YouTube subscribers in a very short span of time and was featured in Business Insider, The Verge, even a documentary. But then it all fell apart. Today, we'll explore how going viral can be a trap rather than a dream. Enjoy the show. I want to start with your uh, previous YouTube journey, um, your NFT channel. But I want to ask you, because uh, I know that you, you stopped it now, you changed completely, and I want to know how going viral in a specific subject, in this case, NFT, sort of led you on the wrong path. For my previous YouTube channel, um, I, I never, like the, the intention was to never become a crypto channel ever. It was like late 2021. It was kind of like, like the height of the NFT craze. You go on Twitter and it's like, yeah. Uh, there were, everyone was talking about NFTs. Some people loved them, some people hated them, but no one could really like tell you what they were. At that point, a lot of my content, both on Twitter and on YouTube, were about how to grow on Twitter because people love that content, at least on Twitter, and more like entrepreneurial stuff, like my experience interning at a startup, um, some other things like that. I wasn't really sure where my exact niche was on YouTube at all. I was just kind of um, taking a lot of threads that I had written on Twitter and repurposing them into YouTube videos, still experimenting. And so there was this huge craze all over social media with people talking about NFTs, and I'm not one to be left out of conversations. So I built my own experimental NFT collection. Um, it was not meant to like make a ton of money or anything like that, but I just wanted to know what people were talking about, and the best way to learn is by doing. So I released this experimental NFT collection, and through that process, I made a lot of mistakes. One was that I had no idea what gas fees were um, and kind of like learning all of these mistakes. I was like, "Ooh, since so many people are talking about this, so many people are thinking about making their own NFTs, I can write a thread um, that kind of like details my own experience that people don't make the same mistakes that I did. So I released that thread on Twitter and people love the thread. So then I turned that into a YouTube video and the YouTube video went viral. And that kind of like comes to your question. And... At that point, I had a decision to make. There's this fork in the road because people say niche down to blow up. So I could either niche down into the world of NFTs because I had so many new people coming to my channel and finding my channel and saying like, hey, Aprilin, this is the best NFT video that I've seen on the internet and other things like that. So many new people coming to my channel interested in NFTs because of that video. And the question was like, do I keep riding this momentum or do I pivot away. Again, at that point, I didn't really know what my niche was. I didn't really know even if I didn't make NFT content, what would I be making content about? So I decided to niche down. And the problem was that I truly was not passionate about NFTs or crypto whatsoever. And the first couple of videos were fine because I was just making them. It was okay. I would do some research. I would research a question that my audience had about crypto. I would make a video about the answer, taking like a lot of the technical jargon that I was seeing on the internet, turning that into words that anyone could understand. People were loving the videos. But because I did not really love or even like eventually what I was doing, I burnt out super, super, super fast. Um, and like all of the essentially like intrinsic motivation that I had previously had for starting a YouTube channel and getting new videos out and researching anything, was completely lost, completely replaced by, okay, I just want to make what the audience wants. I want to do something that's valuable for the audience, even if it has nothing to do with what I want. 
and my background, you know, I used to be a banker on Wall Street. So I'm like, well, like the whole reason why I quit that was so I could do something that I loved. If I wanted mm -hmm. to do something that I didn't like for a long time, I would just go back to to the bank and make even more money doing that. Um, so that led to like a lot of burnout, a lot of stress to the point where I like dreaded even opening up my laptop in the morning because I just did not want to like anything to do with the space, anything to do with, with my YouTube channel at all. So can I ask you what drove you in the first place to make that decision? Was it, well, I want to ride this wave to grow the subscriber, to get monetized quickly, to earn some money. What was the prime motivator? Because you, you knew that NFTs were not your thing from the start, right? So what was the thing that, that made you make the decision? Yeah. So that, that one original video did get my channel monetized. I, I passed the monetization threshold from that. Wow. My logic was mm -hmm. that, okay, I can ride the NFT wave for a while, grow up my audience, and then slowly start to transition away from that into a niche that I actually liked. That was the, the logic. Um, what I didn't expect was how soon I would burn out with the NFT content. And it came to a point where I was looking at my channel and I was like, if I tried to slowly transition or pivot away from this niche, it would take me a year. And I couldn't even like comprehend the possibility of creating more NFT or NFT adjacent content for a full year to do that transition. I just, I just couldn't do it at that point anymore. Um, but that that was the original mindset. I saw that you mentioned that it was it was actually quite severe. The not only your interest in lack of interest in NFT, but also the feedback and abuse you started getting. Um, and I was just wondering, do you think it every creator has to face sort of criticism, hate, and trolls, or you got it worse perhaps because you're a woman? or perhaps of the specificity of the NFT niche in the first place? Yeah, I think, I mean, the, I, I will say the large majority of the comments were relatively positive, um, but the ones that weren't were really tough. Um, some of them were oriented because I was a woman. I had like weird threats coming into my DMs too of people like, threatening to like find me and make me theirs and really like weird creepy stuff um and like not taking like no for an answer saying that like even if I don't respond to them they could still watch all my videos and they will eventually find me and just like really weird creepy stuff like that which I'm pretty sure most men don't go through um on the internet or at least like not to that degree um the other things I think were just like being in that particular niche as well I think like, yes, there were um, a lot of like, you know, artists and creators, maybe entrepreneurs in the space who were interested in the new emerging technology at that time. But there were also a ton of people in that space whose priority was to just try to make like a quick buck no matter what. That was kind of like the nature of any particular like trend in which one could make some money. There are a lot of people flooding in who just wanted to make money no matter what. And that's kind of like a, a toxic mindset or at least not one that I identify with. And so a lot of like their comments, you know, were maybe attacking something that I had said um, or, you know, like not they, they, they weren't there for the education. They were there because they wanted to learn how to make money fast. And because that's not like the angle in which I was approaching this, I was much more just from the pure educational standpoint. Um, they did not like that at all. So I think it was like a, it was like a mixture of the niche itself and the people who were in that niche, plus kind of being a woman on the internet. Plus, I think like anybody, no matter the niche or gender or anything, will receive some trolls in their comments on the internet because it's kind of the nature of the internet as well. How do you feel about the niche, the creative niche that you're in right now? Do you think that the risk is still there? And do you have any like guards that you're, you're ready for it now mentally it will definitely happen over time um that's just like again how it is on the internet so, so, so some of the comments that i was getting on the old channel um once i got big enough were just like criticizing my appearance and even like my voice and was like dude if you don't like how i sound don't subscribe to my channel like i'm not forcing you to do anything just right. just go um so i know that 
those types of things will probably come up in, in the future. Uh, also, I will say for, for short form content as well, because how YouTube and any other algorithm kind of treats short form content, it's pushed out to an audience beyond yours. And so most of the troll comments that I'm currently receiving, even at this stage of like a brand new channel, um, are coming from those shorts because it's like broadcast it out and people just say like weird stuff. Do you engage or just hide? I, I usually just like, you know, hide comment or like hide user from channel. There's no point in engaging at all. Um, I think I've developed a thicker skin from the very beginning of my old channel just because of like all the comments that I was getting. For a while, it was like destroying me and I couldn't handle it. Um, at this point now, I've developed a thicker skin to the point where and I can see these comments. I won't really care very much. But like at a certain point, seeing enough not so great comments directed in your direction um, can start to build up. All right, let's move back to the riding the wave. You actually use AI in some of your uh, content generation or scripting uh, your ideas. And you even wanted to make a video about AI, but you were worried that it'll go viral and it'll be another another choice to make whether to, to ride that wave or not. How important do you think it is? And how do you choose um, the things that you want to do for long? Uh, do you look for next year, for next five years, that that's important to do things that you are willing to stick with for a long period of time? Yeah, when when I think about what I want to do now, it's more like, how, how can I get to the point that I want to be at five years from now? Um, and so like if a particular video or idea or something does not contribute to that direction, then it's not worth doing. And because I did have that experience of being burned by a viral video in the past, I make sure for every new video, I'm like, okay, if this video goes viral, will that help me or will that, you know, knock mm -hmm. me off course? And if the answer is it will knock me off course and I will just not make that video because if it went viral, I don't want that to be more harmful for me. Can you share that vision of five years from now? I have like two visions. Um, one is, do you know who Ali Abdal is? I mean, who doesn't? If our listeners don't know, then come on. Right? Okay. Um, so kind of like the idea is to become like a female version of Ali Abdal in the way of having a YouTube-driven business where YouTube is kind of like the where the main audience is, but I know that audience so well that I'm able to create multiple offers for them that they love and that they want mm -hmm. um, and create like a multi-million dollar business from my YouTube channel. Um, having like a small team around me and all of that. So that's like vision one. Vision two is trying to create like a, a YC for YouTubers um, and that, you know, viewing creators is like another way to place investment. Like, can I invest mm -hmm. in creators, give them some sort of like seed money to pay for living expenses for three months as they, you know, come into maybe like an in-person school where we can teach them everything that, that, that they need to know that they don't know, uh, decrease that learning curve and help them grow. And hopefully uh, they'll be able to grow faster and further than they would have without our help. Um, and maybe that seed money can give people an opportunity to become full-time creators if they were otherwise couldn't, couldn't do so because of like a job that, that, they, that they had. So those are kind of like two separate visions, perhaps the, the same vision as well. Um, but yeah, that's like in, in, in my mind. There's yeah, a big overlap. Absolutely. For sure. So, but that, that the second one is is really inspiring. Um, what do you think you would look for in a creator to decide whether you want to support him or not? Yeah, I think uh, a lot has to do with, I think, tenacity and determination. Um, I I think that a lot of people can go really far if they have that like spark in them, in which like I will not give up. I will keep doing this until I make this work. Um, and I guess like the humility enough to know that they don't know everything and that they have a lot to learn. Um, I think those two things, like the, the willingness and like hunger to learn paired with the tenacity and drive and determination to not give up and to keep going. Um, I think that those two traits, regardless of what you're interested in or what you're good at at a certain period of time, 
can go a long, long, long way. Um, because especially in the YouTube game, like it's hard. The YouTube game is really, really hard. And so much of um, of what you're looking at is external when it comes to your analytics and your views and your comments and your likes and everything like that. It's all coming from the outside, from YouTube. And if you don't have what it takes, I guess, on the inside to keep going when things get tough, when you're not getting your views and people say mean things about you and other things like that, then you're going to just give up at some point. So, yeah. Okay, so that's a really good segue to the uh, to your new YouTube channel. I want to know what kind of lessons from the previous one did you take with you to build upon this new adventure? Oh yeah, a ton, a ton. Um, for one, it took me a long time to start this YouTube channel because I needed to know what my niche was going into it. Um, I was like, I have to know what like, exactly what I want my unique angle to be. Because part of the reason why I did so well in the NFT space was because I had a very unique voice. There weren't a lot of other women in the area. And two, most of the channels out there were focused on like the the money side of things, like, like, like or the buying and selling of NFTs versus I was more so on the creation side of NFTs and mostly just the educational side. Plus, I was able to, again, like break down complex topics into terminology that anyone could understand. So I thought, OK, I... I need to have some sort of like unique angle or unique insight into whatever niche that I have. And that's how I know that I'm going to stand out. So I spent a lot more time figuring out my niche before I started. When it comes to the video quality themselves, I mean, I learned so much about script writing, about video structure and organization, about editing, um, titles and thumbnails, all of that stuff um, that I can start my new channel with that knowledge already and implemented. Um, and yeah, is there anything else that I've taken with me? I think like I, I just I know so much more of what to expect with this journey. I know a lot of these strategies that worked for me in the past, such as like keyword research for ranking in YouTube search, um, so much kind of like along those lines and on the strategy side of things versus just like taking shots in the dark of I'm just going to make a video about this and I'm going to hope that it's going to work. Right. I do a lot more prep before I even start scripting a video, just to know that this is the video that, you know, is worth making. Um, so I'd say like my my video making process is a lot more complex now versus just, oh, I have an idea. Let's 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 film it. I love it. I love it. Let's let's dig deeper into deeper into this. So how do you go from your niche and your unique value proposition, let's say, uh, through research to actual video title and script? Yeah. Okay. So uh, assuming you already have your unique angle, your unique insight, your niche, what do you do next? Um, for me, the next thing I do is typically uh, think about keyword research. Like I'll, I'll have I'll have a topic in my head already of, oh, I think people in my audience like have this question a lot or they want to learn about this thing or I've been asked for this particular topic. So I'll have a topic in mind. From there, I'll do keyword research. Um, what that is, is essentially seeing what people have searched for in the past on YouTube. Um, so first I'll like open an, inc an incognito tab and start like typing in the, the video topic, either the video topic itself or in the form of, or in the form of like a, a question, like a how-to question. For example, if I was making a video about camera confidence, like how to be confident on camera. Um, and as I'm typing, I'm seeing what YouTube autofills there. I'm doing this in an incognito tab to not, uh, so that my own searches don't mess up what's being being autofilled. Whatever is autofilled are, are things that people have searched for in the past. After that, I'll come back to my, my main browser on YouTube, and I have this Chrome extension called TubeBuddy. Um, it's a free Chrome extension. And I'll search for different keyword phrases that I collected in the previous step. And TubeBuddy will show you for a certain keyword phrase that you're searching for, what the search volume is and what the competition is. And so for a smaller YouTuber, you're looking for keywords with a high search volume and a low competition. Uh, adding words like beginner or the years, like in this case, 2023, also help a ton in terms of taking away some of that competition. And once you have a keyword phrase or phrases that have a high search volume and a low competition, 
then those keywords go into your title, into your video description and spoken in the video itself. And so that way, the video that you create has a much higher chance of showing up in YouTube search results when someone is searching for your topic. That's amazing. And what do you think the balance should be? Um, the clickability of the videos with a title and a thumbnail quality versus the actual content? Because, you know, watch time is really important, but then click-through rate is really important. How do you look at this? If you look at, like, what the best predictors of views are, um, the highest one is your average view duration. So the number of minutes that someone is watching multiplied by your CTR, your your click-through rate. Um, and so obviously, like, as you said, well, both of these are very important. Um, when it comes to when you're earlier on in your YouTube journey, I think I would I would focus more on like the topic in the title um, to make sure that they're ranking in YouTube search, especially if your video uh, like is much more niche and that like some people are searching for, it, but there aren't really other options for people to be clicking on. Your thumbnail doesn't matter as much as just like answering their question in the video itself. Because if you, if you don't have a lot of options in the first place to to click on, you're just, you're just gonna click on the one that seems like it will answer your question the most. Um, so if you're targeting search results in the very beginning of your journey, then I would say focus on the videos itself. Besides, especially if you're, if you're newer in, in your YouTube journey, focusing on making high quality videos will help you in the long run, right? Because like any everything that you learn now once you start to get better at titles and thumbnails, that helps you because your videos are already good. Um, however, as we know, people won't even see your good video if you're not clicking on it in the first place. So that's when your titles and your thumbnails come into play. Um, so personally, I think that if I were to you know, uh, con consult with someone or coach them, I'd say focus on the quality of your videos first because that's the most important part. Um, and that's what's going to help you in the long term whilst also working on your titles and your thumbnails and improving those over time. Absolutely fair. Um, and about video itself, do you, when you make them and you script them, do you focus on sort of call to action and next step that you want people to make? Is it always uh, subscribe or follow or um, leave your email somewhere and download some freebie? Do you think about the next steps or you just focus on the watch time? When I script the video, I always think about the story that I'm taking the viewer on. So I guess like in that case, it's mostly, I guess, the the watch time. But for me particularly, I care mostly about the transformation. The reason why I do YouTube is because I love the idea that someone can start to watch a video in like state A and come out of it in state B. And they undergo this transformation, this state change through watching this video. That's really what drives me to do this. The fact that I can transform people's lives, even in the tiniest of ways, through a single YouTube video or through a series of YouTube videos as they watch. I just love that. And so what I focus on is how can I make sure that this transformation happens? Um, so I, ans I, I answer seven questions um, before I start scripting any video. Uh, and those questions are, who is the character? What do they want? Why can't they get what they want? Um, what, what are the stakes? So what happens if they don't get what they want? Uh, who or what helps them? How do they help them? And how are they transformed by this experience? And I answer those seven questions in the framing of every single video that, that, that I make. So I know that I can take this character, this viewer on this journey, you know, talk about what, what their stakes are, what, what their pain points are, and help them undergo this transformation so that by the end of the video, they come out again, like in a different state. Um, so that's primarily what I focus on when I script my videos. That is an amazing framework. Um, do you focus always on the same character, like the, the ideal, um, ideal client, ideal audience member that you have that comes up from the niche that you're in and that's the one person you focus on or does it change video to video depending on this topic? Um, for for the most part, it should be the same. And for the most part, it, it is the same because I would want... If someone watches one video of mine, I would want them to also want to watch another video of mine. So if that character is too different, um, then I'm going to start making videos for different audiences, which isn't great. 
I will change it a little bit just because I am, again, like earlier in this YouTube journey. Um, so I'm still shifting a little bit to try to find exactly who the audience is and exactly what they want. Um, so that'll mm -hmm. change a little bit each time. But ultimately, like it should go back to at least like under the wide umbrella of who I think that my audience is or my target audience is. How do you get this feedback? So on like platform like Twitter, it's easy. You get comments, you get replies, you interact with people and you get sort of feedback. You understand what people want on YouTube, not necessarily like that. How do you understand? Is it through analytics or is it through conversations that you try to understand what people want? If you're so early to the point where you're not really getting any comments or comments from people who are not your friends, then the watch time um, slash your average, your AVP or average view percentage is a really good indicator of how well someone likes your video. So if your average view percentage is like 90%, meaning that most people are watching 90% of your video, if it's like a, if, if it's a longer video, like a 10 minute long a 10 minute long video, then that's a really good indication that this particular video struck a chord with your audience. Even if they aren't commenting or liking or anything else at that point because you're so small, if they're watching it through all of the way or a good amount of the way, that's a really good indicator that they like that video and that that's a good fit. Once you start to get bigger and you start to reach more people and you start to receive comments, then that's also a great way to understand you know, people saying that they love the video, people saying that they that it helped them in some particular way. Uh, for me, that's that's what I look for in my comments. If they say this was a really helpful video because I'm like, I want that transformation. I like that versus this was a cool video. I don't really care if the video is cool right now because I want to see that that transformation. OK, I know that you have a type of video that you like the most. Ali Abdal, Ali Abdal style talking head, but people make different types of videos make money and are successful with different types of videos. Uh, do you think that showing your face is necessary or at least the best investment that you can make while building a personal brand and a YouTube channel or making animations or videos that are solely based on B-roll, like some educational channels? Is that also a way to go? Yeah, there there are a lot of ways to go. Um, there are a lot, a, lot of, a lot of different formats that many people have been successful with. In general... If you want to build a stronger personal relationship with your audience, then showing your face is the better way to go because people like to know who they're learning from. Um, and the, the connection that you get via video is a much like richer form of connection versus other formats. But, you know, it's not everyone's main purpose to form a, like a, a personal connection with your audience. And so there are animation channels that have done incredibly well especially if you have a higher budget than being able to, or you're very talent or, or you're a very talented animator. The talking head videos that a lot of YouTubers do, um, they're great and they're relatively easy to make in the scheme of YouTube because all you have to do is just like have a decent enough camera, have like an okay enough background, sit down and talk. But the problem is, is that they have a relatively low view multiplier and that if there was a, if there, if there's a video on the same topic that was in a talking head format versus like, let's say like an animations format um, or maybe even like a reacts format, a talking head video will probably receive fewer views if all other things are the same. Um, just because there are, there are so many more talking head YouTubers out there than they are reacts YouTubers or animations channels or like mm -hmm. breakdown channels or, or, or demonstration channels or other things like that. Um, so I think it really depends on like what your goal is. I actually do have a, a YouTube video out about all of the, the different types of video formats and, you know, how to pick which one is best for you and your own goals. But it, like it, it really depends on like what's your budget? Uh, how much do you want a personal connection with your viewers? How comfortable are you on camera? Um, what are your talents? Like what are you good at? Are you more extroverted or introverted? Right. There's like even like live streams that can happen. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be of an edited video itself. So yeah, I'd say it, it depends on a lot. And you don't have to go any one way or another in order to be successful on YouTube. There are so many, there's like a huge variety of people and channels who have done extraordinarily well on YouTube. So you don't have to just do one. Okay, then let me ask you in the form of 
um, famous uh, hook formula, how to X uh, without Y. Uh, let me ask you how to make a good YouTube video without much experience. The number one thing would be identify your unique angle um, or your unique insight in a particular niche. Uh, know that there's something special about your voice and that you add to it. I think it's 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 a really tough expectation to set of like, hey, I've never done anything video related at all. I'm going to sit down. My first video is going to be an absolute banger. Um, I think it's possible if you have a big enough budget or potentially team um, of people around you who can help support you uh, or time if you have like a ton of time to just sit down and make one video. But for the huge majority of people, the best thing to do is just start by making one. Um, so think about a topic. Think about beforehand, again, like answer those seven questions about who the character is and what they want and all of that. Script a video or do bullet points if you want to address those. And then sit in front of your camera and talk. Um, if you want to, you can you, you can try to put together an aesthetic enough background. Um, but just like I'd say for the first video, just film that video. Upload it if you want. You don't have to if you're scared, but just make it. After that, you know, try to improve on one thing every time. So maybe I want to improve my background time or I want to start start to learn editing. If you want to start to learn editing for your first video, just try making cuts. Cut out all the silences, the mistakes, the ums, the uhs, the bad takes. Just cut those out and practice making cuts. On your second video, start adding text. Just having text like pop in and pop out in your timeline. You know, in the third video, you can start to add uh, icons. I use flat icon for for my icons. So just have icons pop up or or images pop up in different points as well. You're aiming for something visual happening on screen at least every 10 to 15 seconds of your video if you can. You know, after that, potentially try to add some light background music. I use Epidemic Sound for that and just add that, right? And after that, try, try, try some B-roll. You can either take your own B-roll or go to like Pexels or Storyblocks and take some stock footage from there. And so over time, with every new video that you make, you just pick one thing that you want to improve upon from the last video. And I feel like that's like a much more realistic journey for how to like get to the point of like, hey, by your 10th video, you're going to be in a really, really good place versus your first video because you picked one thing to improve every time. And it's much more realistic to expect that in your 10th video versus your first one if you have absolutely no experience whatsoever. Because it's like it's really daunting and it's really overwhelming. You think about every single thing that you need to do for a single YouTube video especially if you look out at like your favorite YouTubers and then you look at your video and you're like, well, crap, like this is so different. How am I ever going to be there when my, when like, this is what my video looks like? Maybe we shouldn't compare it too fast. Yeah, exactly. I think like it's important to set yourself up with the mindset of like, it's going to be kind of cringe at first, but that's okay. You have to get through that in order to become good. Okay, but I know that you spent like 26 hours editing your vi viral NFT video. Mm -hmm. uh, so did you choose some specific skills that you wanted to make perfect on that one video? Or you went uh, perfectionist mode and wanted everything to be spot on? So that 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 video was not my my first video, right? Like I, I had made a number of videos before that. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, I had already gotten somewhat familiar with my editing software, already said somewhat familiar with my own like space that I had available to film and my own voice and other things like that and my own like framing. I experimented with a number of framing. Um, but that video, it's because I, I took a particular editing course. From that course, I had learned a ton about new things in editing that I could do. And that's why mm -hmm. I spent so long making that video because I, I wanted to apply what I had learned editing wise. Um, and I made some, some changes to my own background as well. Um, I'm also like a pretty slow editor. <laughs> um, though it, it did, it did, it did take a while, but that, that was like a choice of mine. One, like I had the time, mm -hmm. so I did it. Um, and I wanted to implement a lot of new things that I had learned. So I did it. Like, I know that you're outsourcing your editing right now, but do you think that it's a good idea to have at least some 
basic knowledge in the thing that you are going to outsource in order not to be, I don't know, screwed over or cheated out or to have understanding also what, of, of what you want and what you should expect? 100%. I do recommend people to outsource their editing as soon as they can because it just it saves so much time. Um, but I also recommend that, that, that they know the basics, the basics of editing beforehand. Um, and it makes it so much easier to communicate with your editor if you know what the basics of editing are and you can ask for specific things. And also, as you said, like to know, is, is the editor worth it in your opinion? Because then you start to know what the relative difficulty is um, and also like what you can and cannot do yourself, right? Because like, like if, if they're just adding text and you think, hey, I can add text myself pretty easily, this isn't adding a ton of value versus if they add more animations and you know, hey, it's really hard for me to make my own animations, then you know that more of the value is there, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, and so you're outsourcing editing right now. Do you outsource anything else? Nope. That's all I'm outsourcing right now. That's all I can afford to outsource right now as well. Um, I do use ChatGPT. That's basically outsourcing. Yeah, Yeah. right. Um, so I, I have that. But when it comes to like humans, um, then it's just my editor right now. You mentioned that you want to build a team later on. Do you have a list of tasks that you do want to outsource and get help with? And what are the tasks that you would like to keep for yourself that you feel most comfortable with and you want to keep doing as long as it, as you can? Yeah, um, I think it'd be awesome if I could outsource titles and thumbnails, if I could just like spend less time thinking about that and just being told, hey, this title and this thumbnail is going to do super well. I just need you to make a video on that. Um, I, I would appreciate some support in researching as well. I do a lot of research before a ton of, of, of my videos um, that I don't think I need to be the one to be doing. So if that was taken off my plate, that would be great. Um, I also just think some like some help in terms of like the not the the video editing, but like the the editing of my script and my writing after I have script like an original mm -hmm. version of it, just that polish would be great. Um, when it comes to overall like video ideas, I don't think I need to be the one to come up with those as well, right? So it's like if there are like if I had a a manager or someone else who was taking a pulse of these types of videos are doing really well right now. Let's make one of these, or a lot of your audience is asking for this. Let's make one of those. Um, I don't need to be doing as much of that, and and people just like taking a look at my own analytics too. And saying like, oh, these types of hooks tend to work a lot better than these ty types of hooks. This video had a very high retention. This video had a very low retention. And then being able to tell me what to do because of that. Right now, I'm doing all of that. And so the amount of time I'm actually spending, like scripting the video itself, which is a part that I like the most, um, a lot of it is you know, being allocated to doing all of these other tasks and components of having a YouTube channel and running a YouTube channel instead. How much time does it take you to script the video? After I have all of the research, it probably takes me six hours to script a YouTube video, um, which might seem like a lot, but also I really enjoy writing. I've always been a, a writer. Um, it's what I love. So like I enjoy that process. Your scripts are on point. So that's oh. a time well spent, I guarantee. Thank you. I, I, I really appreciate that. Um, but then if you think about like the research that has to be done before videos, I can spend like sometimes like two days wow. researching for, for a video. It depends on the video, obviously. But, like I, I, I released one video about like the, the story of Dr. Mike essentially on YouTube. He's like YouTube's favorite doctor. He got yeah. over 10 million subscribers in five years. And, you know, go, researching that video, going through a lot of his old his, his old videos and like his old interviews and other things as well. And just like learning about his story um, and figuring out kind of like what at least I think the main contributors of his success were. It just it, it takes a while. Like once I have all of that, then converting that into a script is so much easier. It takes a lot of time. And I know you've been a part of um, Ali Abdal's uh, course and community, right? Part-time YouTuber Academy. Yeah. So I want to know, do you think you would be able to do it part-time, actually, what you're doing right now? With what I'm doing right now, I'd say prob probably. 
Um, because I'm not really doing it like full full time right now. Currently, mm -hmm. I've slowed down a lot. When I first started my my new channel, I was making one long per video and seven shorts per week. Um, so like one short per day, I was releasing. Now I've slowed it way down to like one long for one long form video like every week and a half. Mostly because mm -hmm. I'm 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 moving in a week. Um, so it's like I just like a lot of stuff, like other stuff has to be done. Um so I I think life happened. You know? Yeah. I think it's it, it's definitely doable for people to release one video per week part time, especially because I have an editor. Mm -hmm. if you're doing the editing yourself it becomes a lot harder it's definitely possible like i know people who do it um they spend less time than me scripting uh which is also completely fine some some people even even work better off of bullet points i personally don't um but some people don't like scripts and they prefer bullet points and so their their time spent scripting a video is much 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 lower do you think that there is some system necessary in order to grow continuously on on youtube like if you were cut down to one every two weeks or one every month is it some some way that you can compensate the lack of videos with i don't know length or quality or the consistency is what matters most i'd say there are always exceptions there are always exceptions you know some some people can release a video once per month but every video is like a movie and it's quality and just like incredible um and like that's that definitely possible but if you think about like what it takes to be successful on youtube for them for for a large number of people it's about making videos consistently improving your quality with every video and eventually youtube will pick up one of your videos and blast it out to a large number of other people um, and that's kind of like how you'll you'll get your first jump on youtube is eventually well one of your videos if you continue to increase the the quality, will get picked up. Um, obviously, the more videos that you make, the better. The one, the better at making videos you will become, and two, the more chances you have at a video being picked up by YouTube because it's just like the volume is just higher. So when it comes to like a systems and what it takes to be successful, uh, I would again just like just go back to your basics, right? Like for sure. Focus on your your niche and your, and your unique insight. Everything comes from that. But after that, create videos consistently. Try to aim for once per week. You know, at worst, aim for once every other week. But create as many videos as you can. If 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 you think about like one video per week, that's only fifty two videos an entire year. If you go one every other week, that's like twenty six videos per year, right? It's like that's not that many videos. If you think about one one per month, that's twelve videos that you're releasing in a year you know like and if those are the only number like the the only videos that you are releasing and these are not particularly like stellar videos because you are a filmmaker um then it's become then it will become really hard for your youtube channel to take off you know one of the things that i like most about your content is how much you talk about i don't know it's called the vulnerability things that you failed or did wrong or mistakes you've made um it's 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 really endearing but i think a lot of you, you mentioned somewhere i think that um that the atmosphere is now very different uh, when it comes to like online vulnerability and sharing the atmosphere may be changed but people didn't change like do you think do you think you have something inherently in inside you that is comfortable with sharing something from your heart or it's something you had to learn to do it publicly I think it is something that I had to learn. Uh, I, I I think back. So I I started my Twitter account in December of 2020. Um, so still like relatively recent in terms of most people being on Twitter. And in the beginning, like I had I I didn't really know how to be on Twitter, how to be online. I I didn't really have like an, an internet presence at all before that right i had an instagram i didn't post on it that was like it right it's like i i, I didn't really have any other social media presence um so i think it is something that i had to learn like okay me just like tweeting these random things out into the void isn't 
helping. It's not getting me anywhere. But hey, now not like me mm-hmm. talking with other people and engaging with other people in some way that feels authentic, uh, that seems a lot better. Um, I'm starting to like see more things from that. When I, and then they come to my Twitter account and then they're commenting things that feel genuine and authentic. And then I feel very like, you know, loyal to them because they're saying these things. And I kind of realized over time that being more authentic and vulnerable is good. Um, I do think that part of it is a little bit generational as well. Because I still have conversations with my mom who says like, why are you sharing all of, all of these things online? You shouldn't be sharing all, all of these things online. Like if you keep doing that, you know, if, if you keep talking about what, what you don't do well, no one's ever going to want to buy from you or anything like that. Um, so I do think in, in part it's like, I, I mean, I feel very comfortable with it now. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's just because I was doing it the other way at first and it wasn't really working. Um, and right now, like I've come to value my connections with my audience and with other creators as well. Like just so, so, so much that I wouldn't trade it for the world. Like, I, And I also see people on Twitter um, who are not very authentic or not very vulnerable. And I personally don't really love their content. Um, so I'm like, well to each their own and it can work incredibly well to not be vulnerable online and it can work incredibly well to be vulnerable online but I think I realized that when it comes to the creators that I liked like the other creators that I liked all of them were vulnerable in some way shape or form so it's like okay if I love their content I want to make content similar to that I should probably I should probably be vulnerable as well I saw you being also a part of um Daniel Vassalo's community, Small Bets, mm-hmm. uh, who is very much into quit often, quit early type of philosophy, right? Um, how would you know? So you quit your YouTube once and you know why. We all know why now. When would you quit this particular endeavor? Uh, is there some line that you're drawing for yourself when you're going to quit this if X doesn't happen? It would have to be a while. The The first thing is if I run out of money, at some point, then I, I probably would not want to quit, but I would take a small step back at the very least, get like a part time job or spend more time doing consulting or other things so that I can continue to pour into my my YouTube channel. Um, I also like I, I don't think I would I would quit this because I know that I love doing YouTube. If anything, I might pivot my niche later on. But mm-hmm. I think like I've quit enough things in the past to know for sure that I really love creating YouTube videos. Um, so things might happen where potentially, you know, this niche isn't working as well as I hope that that it would. And maybe I need to pivot my niche. But I'm starting this YouTube channel in alignment enough so that even if I pivoted away from it, bits like bit bit by bit it would still be within the realm of alignment in general um so i think like a lot of my previous like failures and quits have helped a lot so that i feel pretty confident in doing this um pretty confident that if things don't work out the way that i want them to then i can continue pivoting but know that i'm still going in the right direction you have a strong foundation and yeah. you have a passion that you know is there, right? Yeah. Um, talking about Daniel Vassallo, how do you get to be a lecturer in his community? <laughs> um, I got pretty lucky, I think. You know what? I'm sorry. No, no. Almost every creator tells me that. Oh, you know, I got lucky with this. Oh, I got lucky with that. That is such a BS. You you work for your luck and I know you do. So okay, don't, okay, don't... okay, okay. Um, yeah. So I, I I knew I knew Daniel a bit before. So I I att- I, I took his Twitter course a long time mm-hmm. ago, um, and that's how I first like heard of Daniel Vasallo. Then I gave him a, a follow on Twitter. Um, eventually, I think like he started to to know who I was because I think like I I made a Twitter thread. And again, the, this is years ago, so I'm trying to remember. I made a Twitter yeah. thread about 
some of like the key takeaways that I had learned from his course. You know, I tagged him and, you know, linking to his course and things. And I asked him for permission in DMs first. I was like, hey, like, is it okay if I post this? Because like, I didn't know if he wanted all of that to be secret. Um, he was like, no, yeah, for, for sure. So that's like the first interaction, I think, like directly with Daniel Vassala that I had those years ago. Um, and pretty soon into my Twitter journey, he gave me a follow back. Um, Cause I think like he liked the direction that I was going in with my account. So we kind of had like uh, some sort of like interactions there. I'd see him in my, my, my feed sometimes. Um, but when it came to like being a lecturer in his small bets community, I think it, it was because uh, a lot of my own content, like I, I'm, I'm a huge believer in building in public. And so when I was building my first YouTube channel, I was doing that in public. And I was like saying mm-hmm. what I was doing, what was working, what, what wasn't working. When I started to like take off, I would have like huge breakdown threads of, you know, what led to that. I took PTYA. I had like a huge mega thread of like the top 40 takeaways that I had from taking PTYA. So I was already like releasing a lot of like free information about YouTube. And I think... Daniel Vasallo saw that and he was like yeah she knows what she's talking about right and he'd already like followed me for some time um and like I guess he trusted my quality of information um and that like I wouldn't BS anyone he knew that I was authentic that I was mm-hmm. genuine and he knew what I knew because I was like putting everything online and so from that you know he asked me if I could be I was like his his YouTube lecturer um, on small bets. And yeah, that, that's how I was originally asked. I have no idea where you got luck from that. That was <laughs> professional. That was professional relationship building. Actually, do you do it often? Do you do it, do you do it still? Like slide into DMs? I hate that term, but do you slide into DMs of bigger creators trying to build those relationships? I don't. I'm really, really, really bad at that. Um, I think it's it's one of my goals of something that I want to do. But I like mm-hmm. I never DM people like I I can't I don't I can't even think about the last time I like cold DM someone, which is ridiculous because so, so much good in my life has come from DMs. My current partner, I right. met him through Twitter, through DMs. Like it's just it's but, it's but, like but. incredible. Um, But yeah, I don't really I think it's because I'm so scared because I receive so many cold DMs. And so many of them are like complete trash. And so I know how annoying it can be if you DM someone out of the blue and asking for a certain thing or just asking for their time. Um, I know how how, like annoying that can be and I don't want to be annoying to someone else. But, you know, obviously a lot of good things have come from that. I do think that um, in order for like a cold DM to be done well, there needs to be a lot more that comes before the DM is sent itself. Right. It's like, you know, the DM for Daniel Vassalo worked so well way back then because I said, hey, I'm I I have like an entire thread written about your course. Can I post it? Of course, he's going to answer that because like it's a good thing for him. Um, Right. It's like the the so much stuff has to be done beforehand to make the cold DM work. Uh, Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's, it's just not something that I have prioritized in my own process yet but i should i really should judging from your history maybe yes and <laughs> i think you're really good at this um all right uh, i want to move a little bit to education so you are a really good educator um but you also had some university education as well and i wonder how do you look at the differences uh, do you think that yeah le- peer-to-peer education is the future and we should disregard school completely or you think that this is more complementary? I don't know. I I didn't I didn't really find my college education very useful, um, which is a bummer considering how much I paid for it. Uh, like I I learned so I think so I I don't think my college education was helpful. I think my college itself was really helpful. Right, like one of the most pivotal experiences of my life came from an internship at a series A VC backed startup in Silicon Valley. That was like my first entrance into the world of entrepreneurship. It was a completely life-changing experience. 
I learned more over that one summer than I had in all of my college experience combined, like all of my classes combined. But the reason why I got that internship in the first place was they were recruiting. They only went to two career fairs, only two schools they went to. One was Stanford, which is where they were. One was Cornell, which is where I was, right? And it's like, if I wasn't at that school, then I wouldn't have had that opportunity to intern with them. Now, of course, now you can just like go online and on Twitter and maybe get more more internships from there. But like just being in that place was really helpful. Uh, mm-hmm. I think throughout college, I got more doors open because I did have the name brand of Cornell and like an Ivy League u- university behind me, even though now I'm like, why does that matter? Like there are so many incredible people. I know so many like, you know, for forgive my my language, but like jackass idiots, like from my school at Cornell. And it's like, there's no reason why having like a name brand university behind you says anything about who you are. And they're like some like incredibly brilliant people who have come out of like state schools or community colleges or no college at all. So I think it's dumb that status is attributed to colleges. But at least right now, I don't think that it's negligible. I do think that I have had more doors open to me, more conversations open to me because of that name brand university. So I think like the as dumb as it is, the status and prestige behind it has led to tangible benefits. But when it comes to like the, the caliber of education itself, how do I don't I don't think I really use my my college education now what do you think about uh, creator economy education do you think we should have more uh, ivy league programs for uh, creator economy uh, and creators in general or that's a practical skill that you probably should uh, learn while doing people don't really go to business school to learn how to be entrepreneurs they go to business schools to learn how to be like managers or CEOs or CTOs or other things like that, right? Um, or I see CMOs. Um, they go to learn how to manage and rise into leadership positions at like larger established organizations. Um, you can't really teach someone how to be an entrepreneur from a classroom unless there's like a ton of out-of-classroom experiences, right? Again, like I learned so much more about startups from having an internship at a startup than I had in like, you know, from anything that I had, that had ever been mentioned to me in, in school. So I think it's, I, I do think that it's possible to learn you know, entrepreneurship or how to be a creator or anything else in school if a large enough component of it is out of classroom, is tangible. On the other hand, I see a lot of people that have particular skill and it's not a creator skill or any creative skill and educational skill but they have some skill that they have learned and they worked in some industry for a very long time but they are not able necessarily to move into the education uh, they are not able necessarily to move into being educators themselves um, for you it seems quite a natural process do you have some sort of tip how to codify your expertise into being a teachable experience yeah that's that's kind of what i'm i'm working on um that that, that's like what what i want to develop in my own youtube channel is almost like a curriculum there that teaches people how to do that um the only thing that i can do right now is just think about my current process um i think a lot about like the the story that i tell the transformation that i want to have happen in every single video making sure that the video is tangible enough to have like something that someone can take away from it um, short enough so that it's not, you're not talking about a million things in one video. There's like one key takeaway. Um, and I think like a big, a big mistake that I see in lots of other educational channels from experts is that they tend to get too technical. The large majority of people tend to get too technical because if you're an expert in your field, the things that seem like easy and like duh to you other people have no idea what what you're talking about one of the biggest things to focus on is truly 
think about someone who knows nothing about this? Like, how would you mm-hmm. teach it to them from scratch? Um, yeah, I mean, there, there are other there are other things when it comes to like how, how to organize your videos and things like that. Um, but I do think that I want to again like, create like a series that helps people go through that process because, as you said, like just just because you have knowledge in brain doesn't necessarily mean that you know how to like convert that knowledge in brain into an educational video that people actually want to watch and learn from. That makes me think of a Feynman technique. Uh, teach like you're explain things like you're talking to a fifth grader. I think it's a fantastic mental mental model to to follow. Yeah, and that that then means that you actually really understand and are able to teach things. April, it was a fantastic pleasure to have you. Thank you so much, and uh, I'll see you around. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I think there's a very valuable lesson here. Going viral is not the dream that it promises to be. But I'm super happy that Aprilin managed to build on that experience and the knowledge that she gained. And now she's helping people like you and me to create content. I think it's called passion economy for a reason. You won't be able to last for a very long time if you don't have the steam to go on. So stick with the thing that you're really passionate about. And please stick with us when we interview another amazing creator next week. See ya.